as we come to the word, I'll begin with a quote from Howard Hendricks. He says, in the midst of a generation screaming for answers, Christians are stuttering. He wrote those words as an assessment of the Christian need to declare, define, and defend the truth that we hold so dear, the truth that we would implore others to adopt as well. By recording those words with his own hand, Hendricks offers us a picture of his own personal desire that Christian truth be proclaimed. But Hendricks is not the only person to express such a truth. By recording the words with his own hand, the Apostle Paul preserved his own desire for the same thing. It's something that we read about in the epistles that he has written to the various churches. Expressing his own desire to fulfill his calling, Paul has left behind a precedent for believers, a precedent for a standard of life that involves being centered on the proclamation of the gospel, of the Lord's truth. And so learning from him, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 4. For the second part in a message that I've called the Believer's Testimony, a proclamation. And please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You may be seated. If you want to stifle the witness of the Christian faith, you don't bring it conflict, you bring it comfort. History has proven that the Christian faith, when attacked, actually thrives. Those who desire to silence Christians once and for all do so by wielding their weapons of violence and persecution intent on destroying the gospel witness. At various times, some have even gone so far as to say that that Christianity is dead. Obviously, they're clearly wrong in that because here we stand. Even the New Testament notes that when it is persecuted, Christians are most persevering. This is why many pastors believe that persecution is necessary because they see it as a means to invigorate the church and to proclaim the word more boldly once again. Instead, Christ followers are most complacent when they are most comfortable. And so it would seem that the best way to silence the church is by bringing it riches and conveniences. When Christians have this, to quote a fellow BMW missionary, the church is lulled to sleep. John Piper writes, 
The crying need of the hour is to put the churches on a wartime footing. Mission leaders are crying out, where is the church's concept of militancy, of a mighty army willing to suffer, moving ahead with exultant determination to take the world by storm? Where is the risk-taking, the launching out on God alone? The answer is that it is swallowed up by a peacetime mentality. In peacetime, the soldier is in his most relaxed state. His guard is down. He is more casual, and he accepts a lot of things as routine. But the wartime soldier is on alert, <clears throat> aware of the ever-present danger, and so he is ready at any given moment. He is ready to act upon the intentions of his commander. He is ready to advance under the authority of the one who sent him. And so because of that very authority, the soldier is ready to declare and defend the message and method of his commander. He inserts himself, when necessary, in order to engage in battle. This is the same concept that we began with last week, decrying the need for us to insert ourselves into the Lord's battle, not to isolate ourselves from it, for the sake of proclaiming the truth. The gospel advances not by withdrawing from society, but by embedding ourselves into it. Yet to do this means we are entering a spiritual battlefield. It is wartime. And so for every fiery dart that, of the Lord's truth that is fired, those on the other side will send forth their fiery darts of anything that will oppose that truth. Unbelievers will seek to capture believers in hopes of converting them. Therefore, we must go forward in the full armor of God. And we must put some regulations in place that protect us from being captured. In Paul's prayer request in our text this morning, we see four marks of a ministry of evangelism. These marks keep the disciple maker oriented towards the Lord and away from the world, offering protection by placing barriers between us and the world. And so very quickly, I want to remind you last week that a ministry of evangelism is prayer initiated. A ministry of evangelism is prayer initiated. As Paul begins at the same time, pray also for us. Pray for him and his co-laborers. I am convinced that a lack of evangelism begins with a lack of prayer. Prayer serves as a means to rely upon the Lord and to remember the Lord's will. But also remember we talked last week about what Paul didn't pray for. First, he didn't pray for his circumstances, but for his calling. He's writing from prison, and he doesn't ask for the Lord to spare him or to release him. Instead, his only ambition is that the Lord would open up doors so that he can fulfill his calling right where he is at. His calling to preach Christ crucified. Second, he didn't pray for sinner, saints. He, prayed for, he didn't pray for sinners. He prayed for saints. We would expect Paul to say, Lord, please save those who are unsaved. But that's not Paul's prayer request here. Instead, he prays for his own ability and, and those working with him that they would have the ability to share. We learn the same lesson from Jesus and Matthew, who upon seeing the, the lost, he has compassion on them. But he doesn't pray for the lost. 
He tells his disciples, pray that the Lord would send workers. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, so pray that the Lord would send workers. And so the advancement of the gospel is dependent upon one's advancement in prayer. Second, we see from our text that ministry is God-directed. It should go without saying that the advancement of the gospel is dependent upon the advancement of the Lord. Paul's request is, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. That God may open up a door. This is his work. This is his will. And so it is utterly dependent, not upon us, but upon the Lord. Looking at Acts 14, we have a description of the ministry of Paul and Barnabas at Iconium and Lystra and Antioch. Verse 27 of that chapter tells us that it is God-directed, that they praised God for him being the one to open the doors for that ministry. And yet that whole chapter, despite this being the Lord's hand in the midst of it all, tells us that the people still sought to stone Paul and Barnabas. And indeed, at one point, they succeeded. It says they left Paul for dead. So even though it is God-directed, it doesn't mean there's a lack of rejection or a lack of opposition. Those are the first two points that we covered last week. I want you to note third now, that a ministry of evangelism is Christ-centered. A ministry of evangelism is Christ-centered. Our text continues saying, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. The advancement of the gospel is determined by the message proclaimed. And there are many messages being declared in the world Some messages are just outright anti-Christian, and by that I don't mean that they preach explicitly against Christ, saying Christ is wrong, but I mean that implicitly they oppose Christ by sharing a a supposed truth or sharing a premise, I guess, that opposes the promise of Christ. And so some messages are anti-Christian. Others are pseudo-Christian. They give the appearance of being Christian while actually subverting the work, the word, and the worth of Jesus Christ. At the heart of Christian evangelism, though, is the message of Christ, or the mystery of Christ, as our text calls it. If the message is absent the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, then it's not the Christian message. Even further, if the message being declared is is absent of Christ, it's not Christian evangelism. Paul's prayer request is specific. He asks for the opportunity to declare a message, and more importantly, that message is precise. It is the mystery of Christ. This mystery of Christ is previously mentioned earlier on in the same epistle. In fact, it, it acts as a sort of bookend for the book of Colossians. Paul begins Colossians 1 with this declaration, I am a steward of the mysteries of God. And now as we start to end our study in Colossians, he now says, I want opportunities to steward the mysteries of God. We read in Colossians chapter 1, verse 25, beginning in verse 25, 
of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So what is this mystery that Paul refers to? Verses 26 and 27 in Colossians 1 tell us that the mystery is the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's plan. Though the Jews have always been God's chosen people, the Gentiles have always been part of God's salvific plan also. It's just that at one time that part of God's plan was obscured. It was not fully revealed to the people But now we see that it has been fully revealed. It has been unveiled. And Paul says that at one time it was kept secret. He writes, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Not only did the resurrection of Christ expose Christ's nature as God, but it disclosed God's plan to provide him as a means for salvation to all people. Not just Jews, but to Gentiles also. And ultimately, it affirms the message of Christ. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The mystery of Christ is that message of salvation, the atonement of sin provided for by the service and sacrifice of Christ. Turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 should hopefully be a familiar passage to you. Maybe you've read it recently. It is here that Verse 12, that the mystery is described with these words. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. That's the mystery revealed. That there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. All may be saved. But look at the effects of that mystery in the surrounding verses. Verse 11 reads, for the scripture says... Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And then verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So then how does somebody learn of this mystery? How do they learn of the need to call upon the Lord? From those who are called to steward the mystery. Verses 14 and 15. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. From the Great Commission, we know that everybody is sent. The book of Acts tells us that Christ himself summoned Paul 
into the world to proclaim Christ to the world. There's something admirable then about Paul's willingness to continue this declaration that is so Christ-centered. Because look at what he says about the message back in our text in Colossians. Verse 3, Colossians chapter 4 again. At the same time, pray for us. That God may open us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. On account of which I am in prison. This message, this mystery, it's created ongoing problems for Paul throughout his ministry. We discussed this last week, and we see it again, that indeed he's in prison for this mystery. This mystery has incited violence, causing Paul to flee for his life on multiple occasions, including what we read last week in Acts 14. On other occasions, he's been placed under arrest, and we see that here in Colossians, that once again it's resulted in another imprisonment. At this point, There's a precedent that wherever and whenever Christ is proclaimed, it will invoke hostility. And so it would seem that it'd be much easier to change the message than for Paul to continue enduring the aggression, the resentment, and really even the estrangement of the world. Actually, Paul doesn't even need to change the message entirely. He, He could just soften it a little bit, maybe not emphasize Christ as much, but three weeks ago, we read in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. There will always be those who reject this message. Softening does nothing except to tamper with God's word. Paul's calling is to preach Christ crucified. And Christ is both the source and the subject of the message. And so evangelism only occurs when it is Christ-centered. Jesus Christ is, is the core of who we are and what we do and why we live. He is a central creed and conviction of our faith. Everything we believe is built upon and supported by Christ. When Christ is removed, it removes the structural integrity of the entire plan of God and everything that we would believe. Mark Vrogrop shares a story of taking up running as a discipline in his own life. I have to share somebody else's story about running because... I don't run. If you see me running, it's, it's probably not for fun. Being chased by something. Aliens, monsters, the government, I don't know. Um, so I look at Mark Vogrop, and he shares the story of him taking up running. And he says he, he did so because as he got older, precisely at the age of 35, and his metabolism slowed, his suits began to shrink so he started running. And he says he was introduced to the fascinating subculture of runners because his wife was a runner. She was an avid runner, and so she helped him purchase his first pair of running shoes. And he helped, helped him understand various ways to train and to push himself far beyond whatever he thought he could handle. And indeed, he started running. 
He began signing up for various races, and it became part of his weekly routine and rhythm. And he did. He pushed himself beyond what he ever thought he could achieve. But he says that as he began to go along, he realized that certain aches and pains, which he thought were just part of his old age, began to grow. Specifically, a recurring back pain began to happen. And so he talked to an athletic trainer, and the athletic trainer said, well, the problem is that you're not working on your core. And he explained that by strengthening the core, those core muscles, that would help, if not solve, his back problems. As much as he didn't want to, and as much as he didn't believe the athletic trainer, he began doing crunches and sit-ups. And he had to admit, finally, that indeed that athletic trainer was right. He just needed to focus on the core. And when that core was built up, everything else became stronger. It was that core group of muscles that needed strengthened. Because that core supported the rest of his structure. Or the words his athletic trainer used, they would keep the rest of the body in alignment. That's who Christ is in the gospel message. He is the core. He is the structure of the message. The Apostle Paul had the opportunity to share any number of messages. He could have softened it, or he could have changed it. He could have done something to make it much easier upon himself. But the mystery he is called to declare is the mystery of Christ and nothing else. Jesus Christ is the core, and he keeps the entire message in alignment. If we get Christ wrong, we get the message wrong. And so a ministry of evangelism must be christ Centered. I want you to note for fourth that a ministry of evangelism is definitively proclaimed. A ministry of evangelism is definitively proclaimed. The advancement of the gospel is determined by the willingness of the stewards to proclaim that message. I would tell you that the gravity of the task determines the accuracy of the task. And I don't mean to suggest that a less serious task deserves to be less factual or less meticulous. But what I do want to convey is that the more weighty a task is, the more a person will sense the burden to ensure that the message is conveyed is, is done rightly, that it is conveyed with sincerity and accuracy and clarity. We get a sense of that burden from Paul's request. He says, pray that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Paul tells the Corinthians, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Clearly, he understands the seriousness of his charge. At stake are not just people's lives, but people's souls. I don't think it's fair to say that any confusion in the message may condemn someone to eternal damnation. I'm not saying that if Paul didn't get the message wrong, right, if he didn't speak it clearly, then somebody's going to hell. No, I trust in the sovereignty of God, that God will orchestrate and direct that as he pleases. Ultimately, their sin has sentenced them to that, and this judgment happens regardless of whether or not Paul preaches clearly or not. But what I do want to convey is that an unclear presentation impacts the opportunity for that person to be rescued at that moment. The consequences here determine the importance of that call. 
No doubt Paul carries the burden of this call because he sees the potential results. I find it utterly fascinating that how the importance of sharing the mystery impacts Paul's response. Paul doesn't respond by working on this presentation. Despite the seriousness of this call that he wants to speak as he ought to speak, he doesn't try to refine his words. He doesn't reorder his points. He doesn't try to make it clear. Paul responds by praying. This doesn't mean that Paul's without knowledge, that he didn't understand the message. He didn't go in and say, Lord, help me preach a clear message. No, he he had that background there. We know that because it says he studied the scriptures. He knew the truth. Upon being saved, we know that he went away and studied for a significant amount of time. So he already had that knowledge there. He's now just asking the Lord to help him make it clear when he presents it. That knowledge is crucial in being able to share But he doesn't spend time on how he presents that knowledge. He trusts the Spirit's work there. If sharing the message and transforming lives is the work of the Holy Spirit, then his time is better spent not in crafting a better message, but in relying upon the Holy Spirit. Once again, prayer is just an act of submission to God. It shows Paul's reliance upon the Holy Spirit and his willingness to allow the Spirit to work through him. And so essentially what Paul is saying is, I want to speak the gospel clearly by letting God speak through me. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified once again. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So what we see is that Paul is not focused on how he says it, but on what he says. And then to the Ephesians, he adds something else in Ephesians six nineteen through 20. He says, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So not only is there a desire to speak clearly, there's a desire to speak boldly. Last week I shared with you stats of followers of Christ and the number one thing that keeps them from proclaiming the truth, and it was fear. 50% of the people, over 50% of the people, said fear was a barrier for them to proclaim the gospel more freely. After seeing everything that Paul has gone through for the sake of the gospel, we're probably not surprised about fear. The message of Christ has incited hatred and antagonism, and in some cases, violence. No wonder the most needed characteristic for proclaiming this mystery is boldness. It is courage. No doubt most of us need a level of courage to offset the level of fear we have when sharing. For most people, boldness is an elusive virtue. Few people can just summon up the courage at a moment's notice. So how does one find this boldness? Scripture tells us in the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3, 
There, Paul writes of the magnificence of the gospel. In fact, he calls the gospel glorious. So wonderful and amazing is this mystery being proclaimed that it instills hope for Paul. He says it's a hope of a future with Christ. It's a hope of deliverance from sin's punishment and a hope of salvation from sin's effects. And after declaring all of this, Paul writes to the Corinthians, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. That tells us that boldness comes from our hope. That those who have a hope and a salvation by Christ are bold in also proclaiming that salvation by Christ. The two are tied together. And so sometimes maybe if we lack boldness, it's because we lack hope. A combination of those two passages, Colossians 4, 3, Ephesians 6, 19 through 20, they show us the characteristics of proclaiming the gospel definitively, to do so clearly, to do so boldly. There's a man by the name of Hugh Latimer who once preached before King Henry VIII, and Henry was greatly displeased by the boldness in the sermon. And so he ordered Latimer to come back the following Sunday and to preach the message again, but to this time to do so and apologize for all the offense that he had given. And so the next Sunday, after reading his text, he began his sermon, Latimer did, by asking himself a question. He began by speaking to himself, and he says, Hugh Latimer, do you know before whom you are to speak this day? And then he answered his own question. To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away my life if I offend. Therefore, take heed that I speak not a word that may displease. He goes on, continuing to speak to himself, and says, But consider well, Hugh, do you know from where you came? Upon whose message are you sent? And again, he responds to himself, By the great and mighty God who is all-present, and who beholds all my ways, and who is able to cast my soul into hell. Therefore, take care that I deliver his message faithfully. And then Hugh Latimer went on to preach the very same message he preached the week before. But he did so with more energy this time. He not only preached the same message so that it was clearly understood, he did so in a way that was more bold, regardless of the threat against his life. Jonathan Rourke reminds us the task of the evangelist is not to bind Satan, but to break the cycle of deception by introducing truth. The fruitfulness of the effort is left to the will of God. And so the task of a ministry of evangelism is that the message must be definitively proclaimed. Paul writes, Colossians 4, 3 and 4, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. With that one request, Paul tells us much about himself and about his ministry it's clear that he took the Lord's commission very seriously. So serious was he to labor in it that he asked others to labor alongside him by praying for him. That's his request. 
And as a result of that prayer, we learn these four lessons about a ministry of evangelism. First, that a ministry of evangelism is prayer initiated because it's dependent upon the Lord's work. Making disciples must begin and end in prayer. Second is God-directed. As a proverb says, man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. We don't merely rely upon the Lord to save and sanctify, but we rely upon the Lord to open those doors of opportunity. And third, it is Christ-centered. The foundation of any ministry of evangelism and a disciple-making must be Christ. His attributes, his activities, they must be at the center. If we lose Christ, we lose both our message and our motivation, which I spoke of several weeks ago. And finally, it must be directly proclaimed. The message isn't softened. It isn't changed. It's to be proclaimed clearly and boldly. We're entering a spiritual battlefield, and and these four aspects will protect us and guard us from being influenced by the world while trying to influence the world. As we draw to a close, though, I want to draw your attention to an incredibly important lesson in this text, and I don't want you to miss this. Last week I said Paul's prayer expresses something important, a reliance upon the Lord's sovereignty, not Paul's ability. Having seen the Lord work time and time again, I have little doubt that when Paul utters a prayer like this, he does so with the expectation that the Lord is going to work. And so here we have Paul sitting in jail, uncertain of really the outcome of his imprisonment, doesn't know what's going to happen, and he offers up a prayer to God asking that whatever time he has may be expended by making the most of the opportunities to come. And then what happens? The Lord answered the prayer. That shouldn't be surprising, but the Lord answered this prayer. How do we know that? To the Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So again, writing from prison, we... He, We know that his placement there is to serve a greater purpose, something greater than Paul's comfort or discomfort. It was a means for God's truth to go forward. But then the next verse, it says this, so that it has become known through the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul had opportunity to share with the imperial guard that was over him. Whether or not they trusted Christ, we don't know. Most commentators seem to think at least some probably did. Regardless, we know that the gospel has gone forth. Clearly, the Lord has answered Paul's request by giving him opportunities to share. We're not done. God always prevails further. And so at the close of the letter, Philippians chapter 4, Paul sends his greetings to the church. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. And then see what he says in the next verse. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. 
He calls some in Caesar's household saints, meaning that there are some who have come to know Christ. There are some who have come to believe upon this word. They become believers. And so through Paul's prayer in Colossians, we use Philippians to see that God was faithful. We see both that Paul trusted the Lord by praying to him, and the Lord responded by being faithful. It tells us that prayer is not an effort of vanity. It's an endeavor of veracity. It's not an effort of vanity. It's an endeavor of veracity. And we know this because we see that prayer produces both real character and real consequences. As the Lord opens doors and sends forth his truth, it produces godly character in Paul. Here we we see that character in a confidence that Paul has in the Lord. So much so that he's willing to share his expectations with the Lord. It's showing that Paul trusts the Lord. But it also reveals this character of humility in Paul. Because we see that Paul's desire is not what is best for Paul, or what he may think is best to get out of prison probably, but what is best for the Lord's work. And so this evidence of real character is seen through Paul's prayer. But we also see that it produces real consequences, that the Lord responded by saving people. So why do we engage in the Lord's work? We know that making disciples is indeed a matter of obedience. The Lord has decreed it, so we do it. We know that making disciples is a method of sanctification. It is a means by which the Lord generates holiness in people's lives. And to ignore that, then, is to deny his work. But let me propose to you this as well. We engage in the Lord's work because we know the Lord is at work. We make disciples because we have confidence in the Lord. Just as the Lord was faithful to respond to Paul's request, we trust that He's faithful to respond to us as well. And so to perceive the Lord at work, we only need to proclaim the Lord's word. If you want to see the Lord at work, then you only need to engage in the work of the Lord. The Lord has called us to be fishers of men. Let us not be satisfied by being content in making fishing tackle or being fishing guides. As followers of Christ, let us also be proclaimers of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father God, we do indeed look upon these words, this inspired word that you've written through the hand of Paul, Lord. And Father, we first off not only learn lessons by Paul's prayer request here, but Lord, we find great confidence seeing that indeed even in what we would think is the most dire circumstances, you were at work. That you were faithful to fulfill and complete your work, both in Paul, but also in those that he was called to witness to, Lord. Father, may that instill our hearts with boldness. May we find our hope in you, and as a result, be bold in proclaiming your truth. May we go forth according to your work, according to your will, to declare a Christ-centered message. And may we do so, beginning in prayer, Lord. 
And so, Father, we thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives through the work that you did so many years ago in this word that we see, in this example we see. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.